The following is a message from Pastor Ellis Orozco of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Thank you for worshiping this morning, and we're going to continue worshiping by going to his word in just a moment. Uh, we are in a series of sermons called Unstoppable, and we've been talking about the different aspects of being the unstoppable church, the unstoppable movement of God. And we began in September talking about the unstoppable God, and then in October we talked about the unstoppable disciple, and now in November we are looking at the unstoppable mission, this idea that the mission of God is absolutely unstoppable in our world. And to do that, we started last week with this one idea that I wanted to remind you of. We had one big idea from last week's sermon, one takeaway, and that is this basic concept that that God is already at work in the world everywhere we go. That God is already working in the world at every place in the world. God is already there. And the only question is whether or not we're going to join him. God is working and his mission will not be stopped and the only question is, will we join him? That was last week's big idea, last week's question. And we're going to build on that this week by asking the question, how do we join him? What does it look like to join him? And to, to do that, I want us to look uh, in a moment at John chapter 17. It is known as the priestly prayer, Jesus' prayer for his disciples the night before his death. He prays for them in John chapter 17. But before we read there, I want, I want to kind of set the context for you. I want to set up the, the place where Jesus is. It's the night before his death. And in John chapter 16, the chapter before the one we're going to look at, the chapter before his priestly prayer, John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples that he is leaving. Now he's been hinting at this for a while now. He's been hinting at the idea that he's going to leave, but here in John chapter 16, he tells them plainly and bluntly, it's time for me to leave. I'm leaving you. And the disciples are beside themselves. They're, they're, they can't believe it. They, they're grieving this, this news from this news because they have given their lives to Jesus. They have given everything to Jesus. They have left their homes, their families, their businesses to follow Jesus. And for at least three years, they have been giving him everything. He has been the center of their world. Jesus and their teachings are what they have devoted themselves to. And now the man is saying he's leaving them. He's a relatively young man. He's maybe 34 years old. And he's telling them it's time for me to go. And they're in pain. They're hurting. They're grieving. In fact, Jesus recognizes that they're grieving and he tells them, I I know, I understand. He says to them, I'm going to leave you. And he says, you're going to grieve for a while. But then, eventually, your grief will turn to joy. And can I just tell you, you know, that's not a lot of help. I mean, I'm I'm sorry, it's just not. If I'm in the middle of grieving, if I'm hurting, and you tell me, oh, I know, but it's going to be okay, Someday you'll get over this. That's just not a lot of help. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I, it doesn't help me. I, I'm hurting. I'm in pain. I know it's going to get better. But right now, I'm in pain. I, I started my ministry 30 years ago in a small church in Corpus Christi, Texas. And I hadn't been at that church for very long when a man died suddenly, unexpectedly. He wasn't a member of the church, but his family were members of the church. And so I went over to the house uh, after they received this news. The family had gathered at the house of the now widow. And 
all of her children in the family, and some, many of them were members of my church. So I went to, to be there, and they're in this little living room, and they've arranged the chairs, couches and chairs, and uh, almost like in a circle. And the family's just sitting there in a circle, and they're just grieving. And I'm in the circle. And, and the man's son, who looked to be maybe in his late 20s, he wasn't a member of the church. I, I'd never met him, but he was there, the man's son, in his late 20s, early 30s. And he's, he's inconsolable. He's taking this death very, very hard. Well, understandable, it's, it's never easy, no matter what age you are, to lose your father. And so he's just inconsolable. And, and the mother, the, the widow now, she, she's, she's going through the grief cycle. And one of the stages in the grief cycle that some people get to very quickly is the anger stage. She seemed pretty angry. And, and at some point in the night, this son, he's just, he's just inconsolable. And she looks over at me. I'm sitting on the circle on the other end. She looks at me and says, Pastor, talk to him. Tell him something. Kind of like, what are you doing here, bucko? Earn your pay. Make it better, right? Do your job. <laughs> I Tell him something. I said, I'm sorry? I, I don't know what I did. I, I, was, I was young. I was inexperienced. I, I probably pulled the Bible out and started reading some scripture to him. I, I don't remember what, exactly what I did. I just remember the shock of the moment where the woman looks across at me with angry eyes and says, tell him something. Say something. Don't just sit there. I'm now more experienced and I know exactly what I would have done. Don't you ever have those moments when you wish the 60-year-old you could go back to the 30-year-old you and tell them? Because I know exactly what I would do now. I would have stood up and I would have walked over to him and would have picked him up and I would have given him a big, long hug. Would have hugged him and whispered into his ear, I'm so sorry that your daddy's gone. And I would have just held him. Because the honest truth is that there are no words in that moment. There are no words that are going to make it better. There is no magic balm. Scripture comes the closest but there are no words that's going to make the pain go away. It's this idea that I want to unpack today about how do we join God. And it's the idea of the ministry of presence. That is actually the power of just being present. And in that moment, if the 30-year-old me had been as brilliant as the 60-year-old me is, I would have walked over and just hugged him. That's what he needed. He needed the ministry of presence. This is what Jesus' disciples are going through. And in some ways, it's what we're all going through. The global pandemic has been an unprecedented event in our lifetimes. Now, I understand that there have been plagues and pandemics before. But in our lifetime, it is an unprecedented event. And the world is reeling from it. The world is in pain. The world is in is, in, is struggling right now. The world is experiencing tremendous, the world is grieving right now of the ramifications of this pandemic. All of the indicators of grief are on the rise. Anxiety on the rise. Depression on the rise. Suicide slightly on the rise. All of the indicators that indicate a society or a culture that is depressed, that is anxious, and that is sometimes sometimes even suicidal, that is in turmoil, that is in pain, all of those indicators are, are creeping up. They are all on the rise. And the world right now is hurting. I was eating at this little restaurant that's right outside of our neighborhood. It's an Italian restaurant. 
my granddaughter's uh, ballet class is right next door to it, and I take her to ballet every, every Tuesday night, and the restaurant's right there, Italian restaurant, very dangerous. <laughs> so I, after ballet, we always go over there, and she orders us a big slice of pizza, and, uh, and so we have dinner there, and, and we were there, and it's a mom-and-pop place. I know the, the owner is, is there, and he's waiting on tables, and his wife is waiting on tables, and he has two sons who are in the back, uh, you know, he's yelling at them instructions. The reason I know they're his sons is because of the way he orders them around. I work for my dad. Right? I work for his business. He never ordered me around the same way he ordered the other guys around, right? It was different because I was his son. I can tell they're his sons by the way he talks to them. They're in there cooking. It's a, it's a family thing, right, this business. And, and I asked him, how's it going? And he just, there was no one else in the restaurant. So he just sat down and started talking. We talked for 20 minutes. And he told me, it's, 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 it's terrible. He said, I, the, he told me that the, that the supplier who supplies his food, his ingredients, is, the prices have, have tripled this week, he says. And he tells me, I don't know, I can't charge that much because people can't spend that. The people are eating at home and they're not coming because it's too expensive and I don't know how we're going to make it. And I could see on his face, pain. Anxiety, the struggle. So what can I do? I pray for him. And I've gained 20 pounds trying to single-handedly keep his restaurant in business. I mean, it's Italian food, right? I mean, it's Italian food. So when y'all see me getting bigger, it's the Lord's work. It's a calling, right? Our world is hurting. And the disciples were hurting in the same way in this moment. That's why I want to peer into this moment in Jesus' life and the life of the disciples. Because they were hurting in the same way. They were grieving. They were struggling. They didn't know what was coming next. The future was uncertain the way it is for so many people in our world today. And Jesus, what he does, when, after he tells them that, the first thing he does, John chapter 16, he tells them. In John chapter 17, he prays for them. John, the entire chapter is just a prayer. And the first half of the prayer... Jesus is praying for them, the disciples that are standing in front of him, and they're listening to his prayer for them. But then in verse 20, it shifts, and he begins to pray not for them, but for those who would believe in the future in their message. In other words, he begins to pray for us, the ones who would believe the message. And that's where I want to pick up the prayer. Verse 20, John chapter 17, verse 20 to 26, this is what Jesus prays. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. That they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought to complete unity, then and only then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they that you have sent me I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me 
may be in them and that I myself may be in them. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Here's what Jesus is praying, and I just want to kind of give it to you uh, in, in kind of in sections. I think what Jesus is praying, and I think what he's talking about here is the ministry of presence. He talks a lot about I'm in you and you're in me. The Father and I are one, and I want to be in them, and I want them to be in me. He's talking about this ministry of this idea of presence, and I want you to keep that focus as we go through this and hear Jesus' words. And the first thing I think that he is saying, his prayer for us, remember this is his prayer for us, is that, is that he, he wants that, that we would be present to each other. That as we go through life and the turmoil of life and the ups and downs of life, that we would simply be present to each other. Three times in four verses, he talks about this idea of unity. He uses the word unity or being one, some concept of unity. Three times. In, these, in four short verses, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray all those who will believe in me through their message, verse 21, that all of them may be one. It's his prayer for us. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are. It's his prayer for us. He, in the case you didn't catch it, he gives it to you again in verse 23. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Are you getting the thesis of his prayer? He says it again and again and again. It's that we would be one, that we would be unified. And I began to think about that. What, what, is, what does that mean? How does that look? To be one. Does it mean that we're all going to think the same way? That we're all going to have the same opinions, that we're all going to vote the same way, that we're all going to, to believe exactly the same way about everything that's happening in the world, Lord Jesus, that's going to be a problem if that's what he's talking about. We're Baptists. We can't be 100% in agreement. They'll take away our Baptist license if we do that. We, we, we don't always see the world the same way. We don't all have the same opinions. I don't think that that's what he means. That can't be possibly mean what he means. What does he mean? Here's my experience on what it looks like to be one. So someone in our church dies, and this, this happened. A, a young man um, suddenly, unexpectedly, maybe 40 years old, and he dies. And I get the word, I get a phone call that this has happened. And as soon as I get the call, I immediately get into my car. I'm at the office, I jump into my car, and I rush to the hospital going 100 miles an hour down 75. I get to the hospital in Dallas. I get off the, I get off the car, I find my way, I get to the lobby, and the family's there, and three of our church members have beat me there. They're already there. This is not paid staff. These are not... Half of them weren't even necessarily deacons. This is just three people from our church. And they, now remember, as soon as I got the call, I jumped in my car and I ran down there and I got there as fast as I could. And three of our church members have beat me there. And they're already ministering to that family with their presence. Not what they say. They're not going to remember anything you say anyway. It's all a blur to them. But they'll never forget that you were there. So you see, they're, they're there. And we're at the hospital and we're surrounding the family with hugs and, and we're there for a while. And then after a while, we make our way to the house 
of the, um, the widow, now widow, and we get to the house and we get there and the church is already there. The food comes pouring in, surrounding them, loving them, helping with their presence. This, I think, no matter what your opinion is about things that are going on out there, this is what it looks like to be one. This is what it looks like to be present to each other, to be unified in one accord. Why does that happen? It's called unity, and it happens when we become present to each other, and it's modeled for us by God himself. He models the whole thing for us when he, when he sends his one and only son, the incarnation, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. Not God says to us, not God speaks to us, not God throws down a book to us. No, God himself, he comes down and he enters into our story. That's what it looks like. God could have just thrown the book down and said, just read it, right? No, he came down himself and entered into our story. And what was our story? Our story was brokenness and pain, and anger, and bitterness, and war after war after war, and sin. That's our story. And God comes down just when we needed him most. At just the right divine moment, God comes down and enters into our story. I was recently a part of a of a panel review board uh, that, was, that reviews the, uh, someone who's getting their dissertation, their doctorate, right, at, at Truett Seminary, the seminary that, where I got my doctorate. And every once in a while, they asked me to be a part of a panel uh, of doctors who, uh, who review a, can, a, can, a doctoral candidate's dissertation, right? So they send you the dissertation, you read it, and then when you're at the panel, the, the, this poor person, right, who has to defend, the oral defense of the dissertation and they have to answer your questions. And you have to be sure that they really did the research and that they know what they're talking about. Right? And so I'm part of this panel. And we're doing this. And uh, the candidate is a, is a woman who's graduating from Truett Seminary. And her paper is called, her, her thesis, dissertation, Empathic Listening, the First Step to Leaders Cultivating Unity in a politically divided church. And I'm thinking, wow. I want to read that. Empathic listening. In other words, listening with empathy. Listening with empathy. The first step to leaders cultivating unity in a politically divided church. I read her dissertation. It was actually quite brilliant. And uh, gave her all A pluses through the whole world defense. And I told her at the end of it, I said, I I, you need to publish this in some form. Because we need to hear this. She's developed a five-step process for empathic listening in a politically divided, I would say not just church, a politically divided world, culture, society. Step one, when you're entering into a, 
a heated political debate. Step one is recognize the inner emotion. Recognize the emotions that you're feeling. Anxiety, anger. What are the feelings you're feeling? Recognize the inner feelings. But step two, I think was the most brilliant step in her process. I'm not going to give you all five steps. You can read the book when it comes out. Step one is recognize the inner emotion. And step two is regulate the emotion by turning the villain story into a human story. And I think that's brilliant. Not only is it brilliant, it's biblical. Turn the villain story that you've created about your political enemy, turn the villain story into a human story. That's exactly what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did over and over and over again. That's exactly what Jesus did. So he tells a story about a man who's walking down the road and he gets beat up and people come by, the good guys come by and don't help. And the villain, the Samaritan, he stops saying the Samaritan, he has a story. He's a human being, you see. Jesus is turning the villain into a human being. He tells a story about a man with two sons and the, the horrible son, the lousy son, the no good son goes off. And when he comes back, the good son doesn't want to forgive him. And the, the no good, lousy son, the villain of the story, he becomes the, the human being in the story. And he's worthy of forgiveness because he's, yeah, he's, he's a horrible son, but he's a human being. You see, Jesus does this over and over and over again. The story of Zacchaeus, where Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's an awful human being. He is, he's the villain of the story. And yet he turns the story and Jesus goes over to his house. Of all the people, he goes over to his house. What is Jesus saying to us? He's saying, yeah, you, you make him a villain, but he's a human being. Look at him up in the tree with all the kids. He's a human being, for goodness sakes. Turn your villain stories into human stories. And the thing that will start to turn is your heart. That's called getting down into their story, you see. It's exactly what Jesus did. What God did when he sent Jesus, he came down into our story. Don't you recognize that in the whole story of the Bible, we were the sinners. We're the ones, our sin that crucified Jesus. In the story, you're the villain, I'm the villain. But God comes down into our story anyway and recognizes that we may be awful and broken and frail and failures and sinners, all of us the same, but that we're human. And he comes down into our story and he loves us anyway. And that's what it means to be present to each other, is to go down into the other person's story, walk a mile in their shoes, try to put on their Spectacles, y'all just went blurry. (laughs) Try to put on their spectacles and see life the way they see life. And then you can start to talk. So we have to be present to each other. That's the first thing Jesus is saying in his prayer. The second thing he's saying is that we would be present, his prayer for us is that we we would be present to the Lord. That we would be present to the Lord. He says, the father and I are one. And oh, father, he's basically saying, I want to make you one with them. I want them to feel your presence. I want them to be present to you. We understood last week that God is working everywhere. Everywhere he is working. And I told the story of Irina Sandler, who went into the Warsaw ghetto during World War II at the risk of her life. She almost died. She should have been killed, but she wasn't. But she went in anyway. 
And I said, why did she go in? And I came to the conclusion that Irina Sindler went into that Warsaw ghetto to help the Jews because that's where God was. God was in the Warsaw ghetto. With the, because anywhere someone is hurting, anyone, someone is in pain, anywhere someone is struggling, anywhere someone is being abused, God is there. That's where he is. And Irina Sindler recognized they're hurting, they're abused, they're oppressed, they're suffering. And so God must be in the Warsaw Ghetto. She says, I must go where God is. You understand? That was the first lesson. That, that mean, that's what it looks like to be present to the Lord, to know where he is working, to know where he is, where he is needed. And we go join him there. It means becoming aware. Here's three practical things you can do. I'm going to give you these and I'm going to wrap up because they get mad at me when I go over. Okay, so three very practical things you can do. One is that you obviously you can, you can give. You can give to the work of God wherever you want to give. I mean, you don't have to give here, but we have our, our a great commission fund. We changed the name to it. It's basically this is our unified missions offering. We give to this one offering that we do missions out of the life of our church, but we wanted to to make clear what it is, it's the Great Commission Fund. That's what we're going to call it. For the mission of God locally and beyond. We start here locally, and we're doing a lot of things locally. But we also go global, all over the world. We support missionaries all over the world. And we do it through our collective giving. Where we come together, we are one in this fund, and we come together to do God's work all over the world. And one of the things that has changed, not just the name, but also the idea that we typically, this time of year, we emphasize it. And we talk about it all the way through Christmas. Some of you still give in December because to you it's the Lottie Moon Fund and it'll never be anything but the Lottie Moon Fund. I get it. That's okay. Call it whatever you want to call it as long as you give. Okay? Just you call it whatever you want to call it. But it is giving to missions through the life of our church. And you're going to go out, if you haven't already, and seen the lobby and a lot of the things we're doing. We, we don't have everything we're doing out there, but we have a lot of the things we're doing in the lobby this, this today. So you can go and look at it and see and explore uh, but you can give. And you can give all year long. That's the other thing we're changing. It's not just November, December, but missions for us is all year long. One of the things we learned last week is that if there is no mission, there is no church. That the, the church is created for the mission, not the mission for the church. The mission came first and then the church to accomplish the mission. But if there is no mission, there is no church. If we're not doing what we're doing out there, then we're not the church. We're something else. Some kind of club that gets together, but we're not the church. To be on mission is to be the church. And so we want to give all year long. We want to emphasize it all year long. So those are the changes that are happening there. But you can give. You can give. And the second thing you can do is participate. Uh, We're going to challenge each other throughout this year uh, to make one new friend every month. One new connection. One new person that you have met. We want you to get outside of your comfort zone and to begin to meet new people out there. And we're just asking you to meet them, just to get to know them, at least one a month. Now, let me tell you, for this kind of nerdy introvert, believe it or not, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of scary. That's a little challenging. I get that. For you extroverts, you're all over this, I know, right? You're already meeting like five new people, I know. But for those of us who are more introverted, it's a little more difficult. So we want to give you tools. We want to give you easy ways. This is really not hard. Right? It's what I did at the restaurant, right, with the restaurant. I just say, how are you doing? How's it going? You'd be surprised how often they'll tell you. They will tell you. It's just meeting someone new every month. Can you imagine if five, six hundred of us 
met a new person every month. That's 12 times 500. Y'all do the math. Something like 6,000 people a year knew that we're meeting, right? So we're going to challenge you to that. One of the tools that we're giving you, and we'll give you a lot of tools throughout the year. We're going to give you more tools. But one of the first tools we're giving you, Pastor Ron already mentioned, it is the trailer, our, our community trailer. You can take this. When you go out there, look at all the games. All the games that we have set out in the uh, grassy area out here are all the games that go inside that trailer. It's, a, it's like a, a party in a box, I'm telling you, right? And you can, kind of take, you can come over here, pick up the trailer and take it to your, you can check it out and go use it in your cul-de-sac in your neighborhood just to meet your neighbors. You pull all that out, the kids will come. Cook a few burgers. We don't supply the grill, I don't think. I don't know, but there may be some liability issues there. But hey, cook burgers, hot dogs, and invite them over to play. And this is a way for you to meet your neighbors, a very easy way for you to meet your neighbors. And just talk to them. Just meet them. We're not asking you to pull out the Bible and hit the... No, in fact, don't do that. Just meet them. Just get to know them. Just build relationships. So that someday, maybe a year from now, when you say, hey, we're having this thing at our church called Carol's, and I'd love for you to come. They're more likely to come, aren't they, if you've had a whole year of building a relationship with them, of just being their friend, of just being present to them. That's what we're asking. So go out and check out the trailer. That's the second practical thing you can do. And the third is to help us be a church that is present to the Lord. Um, and one opportunity we have for that, where we see, we're a church who sees where the Lord is, where some people are hurting, where people are suffering, and we go there. And one immediate place where we can do that and are going to do that as a church is with Afghan refugees. Because here are people who are hurting, who are suffering, who are in pain. And they're coming to our world. They're coming to our neighborhood. They're coming. In fact, we've just learned recently that the U.S. The government has basically said um, there are too many. And we don't, our agencies can't carry the full load. So what they've done is they've created a program where if you can gather five people together, called a circle of friends, it has to be at least five people can get together. And, and if you commit to at least 90 days... That, that they will actually give you and your friends a refugee or a refugee family, and you have to raise $2,200 per refugee, per person. So if you have a family of five, you can do the math. That's $6,000? No, $11,000. $11,000. You raise the funds, and you take care of this family. Or, you, or if you just want one, you take care of the one. And you're responsible for everything, for getting the apartment, getting the food, getting the furniture, getting them set up in life here. And we are going to do a pilot group from our church of five. And we're going to help them go through this with a refugee family. And if it works well, we want to do it well. It's a big commitment. It's a huge commitment to take on an entire family and be responsible for them for everything. But if it works well, then we'll do more next year, more, more circle of friends, whoever wants to do it. Five people. You raise $2,200 per refugee and you can help them. Now, I want to say that there are people who might struggle with this, and, and I understand Afghan has left a bad taste in the mouth for many. There are a lot of political issues swirling around the Afghan refugees and what happened in Afghanistan and how we left and the awful things that are happening there now. And uh, some people have been questioning, should we have been there? Should we have not been there? How, the way we left was terrible. Should, we should have done a better job. All that. I, I get all that. There are a lot of political questions swirling around that, and I understand all that, but we're the church. 
We're the church. We're not some political advocacy group. We are the church. And the church goes wherever someone is hurting, wherever someone is in need, wherever someone is suffering, wherever someone is being abused, God is already there. And we are the church that we go where God is working. I'll tell you a couple of things, for instance, about when this is what it looks like to, to turn the villain story into a human story. So first of all, these Afghans who are coming are not, they're not coming illegally. It's illegal. The government is actually giving them to us. So it's not that, you understand. Secondly, these are our friends. You know who one of the biggest advocacy groups for this whole program was? Because they saw that that the, they, the government agencies weren't big enough or couldn't handle everything, and they realized that many of these Afghanis were going to be rotting in some military base somewhere. The biggest, one of the biggest advocacy groups were, were the veterans associations who were saying, these people are our friends. They were our translators when we were in Afghanistan. They, were, they, they cooked our food. They fed us. These are, these are people who helped us in Afghanistan. And now that this other plate thing has come in, they're in danger, and that's why they've left. These are our friends. You understand? Some of them probably saved some veterans' lives while they were in Afghanistan. They say, we're not going to let our friends rot away in some military base somewhere. We have to bring them in and get a place for them to live. You understand? You understand? Starting to turn the villain story into a human story. But even more than all of that, we understand as the church, theologically, that God is there and that those refugees who are coming, they don't want to be here. They love their country. They, they, they would die for their country. They don't want to be in America. It's that they can't live there anymore. Do you realize that there are some family units, and you may get one of these if you do this, but we're maybe a family of five, a mom, a dad, and two children, and they have a third child who's not theirs, not their child. It was some other family or relative who said, we can't get out. But take our child with you. Save my child. To understand what I can't even begin to understand. To say to my child, I will never see her again. I know I will never see her again, but please take her with you. And this is what we have. This is what it looks like to turn a villain story into a human story. And to understand that I don't know where you're going to be, but God is there. Jesus is right there. And so we as a church are going to go where Jesus is. Because that's what it means to be present to the Lord. And then the last one is for the Lord to be present with us. The Lord... The promise of scripture is that when we are present to the Lord, that he is with us. He is with us. Amen. Father, I thank you for the way you love us, the way you give to us and give. We are blessed among all the peoples of the earth. We are so blessed. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be faithful with the way you have blessed us. Help us to be a blessing to others and help us in the end to give you all the honor and all the glory and all the praise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.